All your favorite CBC podcasts are now available on YouTube. The best in award-winning true crime investigations, hilarious comedies, vibrant pop culture conversations, and even more audio series are all available on CBC Podcast's YouTube channel. You'll also find exclusive video first episodes, YouTube shorts, and behind-the-scenes content from our hosts and producers that you can't find anywhere else. So if YouTube is your go-to source for podcasts, just search CBC Podcasts and hit subscribe, and you'll never miss the latest update. This is a CBC Podcast. Well, good luck trying to figure out if Kiefer Sutherland's new character is a good guy or a bad guy. He plays the head of a company that specializes in high-level corporate espionage who ends up having to run for his life. Yes, it is a thriller. You might know Kiefer from that other thriller, 24. He'll talk to Tom Power about why he loves playing characters who are up against giant odds. Plus, there are sculptures and drawings that you stand back and look at, and you put your hand on your chin, and you say, oh, that's nice. And then there's the work of Sherry Boyle. It grabs you and gets you to engage. Might even scare you, like an automated human sculpture that spins its head 360 degrees. Sherry Boyle talks about making art that makes you think. That's coming up. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. You are listening to Q. More than 20 years ago, the TV show 24 kind of took over popular culture. Remember that? It was groundbreaking. Every episode was meant to represent an hour of real time. And Kiefer Sutherland played this complicated hero who was always pretty stressed out, likely on account of the aforementioned time crunch. Kiefer's character, Jack Bauer, was so easy to root for. His latest role, not so much. In the new TV show, Rabbit Hole, Kiefer stars as a corporate espionage expert named John Weir. John is really good at manipulating markets to make his clients rich. Tricking people is what he does, though he calls it consulting. But in Rabbit Hole, John starts to realize that he is the one being tricked. Someone is hunting him down and he doesn't know why. The series airs on Paramount+. Plus. The first few episodes are out now. And Tom Power sat down with Kiefer Sutherland in the Q studio to talk about it. How are you? I'm good, man. I'm good. How are you? Good. Last time we talked was about your record. Yes. It was about Bloor Street. Yeah. Are you still yeah. are you still writing? Are you still playing? Yeah, I've got. I've, I mean, I've, uh, I was just kind of going through. I've got well over an album uh, that I've written, and it's just now finding the time and uh, and where uh, to go and start recording some stuff. But before that, uh, I am gonna. We're gonna try and finally do this touring thing properly. It's been so difficult with COVID. Uh, the last tour we had. Uh, was in Europe and I ended up getting COVID and yeah. so we didn't get to finish that. Uh, so I'm going back out in July to make up for that, uh, starting in the Czech Republic and going kind of west all the way to the UK. Uh, and that'll be July. And then hopefully the US and Canada in August and September. Can you write still when you're shooting a show like this? Can you get some time? I can write when I'm shooting a show. I can't write when I'm on the road touring. Oh. It's so weird. Uh, I think just because I'm so concerned about the set and I'm so focused on kind of that, that, and because it's, it's all the same thing, that uh, even, even jamming with other people in my band, um, it never actually comes out to be songs. Um, but Bloor Street was written while I was shooting Designated Survivor, and, and Bloor Street was written literally crossing a traffic light at Bloor Street and Young. 
from. And I was like, oh my God, you know, I, I pointed uh, to the southeast corner uh, to a friend of mine. And, and it used to, back in the day when I was growing up, it was a Harvey's yeah. hamburger place. Yeah. And I had, I had been with a friend of mine that night, and I think we were trying to buy some pot. And it didn't go very well, and we got beat up. And I remember going to that Harvey's and getting ice for my eye. Wow. <laughs> and, and so I started laughing about just kind of all the stories uh, that I had as a young person on these four corners. Uh, and so Bloor Street was written, and that whole album was written doing Designated Survivor. Uh, so oddly enough, the answer, long answer to your question is that it's very easy for me to write when I'm doing a television show and somehow impossible to write when I'm actually touring with other musicians. I want to ask you about whether there's any intersection between what the show is about and what you end up writing songs about. But I realize that at this part of the conversation, I'm thinking about people listening to the CBC who don't yet know what the show is about. Right. So can you talk to me a little bit about your character and a little bit about... I play a character named John Weir, um, and he is lives in the world of corporate espionage, uh, which is not a world that I knew very much about, if, if anything at all, but it actually exists and, and it's really competitive and it's really dangerous. Uh, and he's very good at his job. And so at the very beginning of the show, uh, he's running an operation on a, on a, on a company for a client and, and he's very much the hunter uh, in that scenario. Corporate espionage is a dirty way to get rich. Espionage? What are you talking about? I'm not a spy. Uh, manipulating people and situations to influence markets for client advantage is what, then? Consulting. And then literally, uh, moments in, the tables are turned, and he goes from being the hunter to the hunted, uh, and someone starts running an operation on him, and he's desperately trying to figure out who and why. Uh, and that's, that's really what the series is about, is, is him literally running for his life and trying to find out who's trying to kill him uh, and why they're trying to kill him. And, uh, and the backdrop of this story, uh, the thing that I've always found kind of really interesting, is that you don't know who's telling the truth. Uh, we live in a society now where finding the truth and understanding what is actually the truth uh, is getting harder and harder and harder because news uh, and information is being catered to what people want to hear and what they want to see. Um, and, and that plays a huge factor in our show. And so even to the degree that you don't know if my character is a good guy or a bad guy. Um, and and if he's telling the truth or if he's lying. Do you need to know as an actor whether he's a good guy or a bad guy? It helps. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean, though, you know? Yeah. Like, I'm, I've never acted. I don't have mm -hmm. any acting in me. But um, when you play someone, like, I, I have to tell you, I've, I've watched the first episode, mm -hmm. and I started out the first episode going like, well, here's my hero. Mm -hmm. This is excellent. And then I ended the first, epi first episode going like, I don't know if I should be rooting for this yeah. guy. Yeah. Is that... It, as an actor, do you need to know that? Well, again, it helps. Like anything that you have to aim for, right? Uh, so if I know he's a good guy and I want to play against the fact that he's a good guy, I have that opportunity because I know where I'm going to land. Uh, but the nature of television just simply doesn't work like that. Uh, and I learned that on 24. When we were making 24, 
me and Howard Gordon would sit down at a bar, have a couple beers, and he would lay out, this is what the season's going to be, and we're going to start here, and this is going to be the conflict, and that conflict's going to be resolved at the end of episode 12, and then this other conflict will surface, and it'll be dealt with by episode 16, and then we'll end here at episode 24. It never happened, ever. Whatever he said was going to be what we would land on at episode 24 was always what we were doing in episode 14. (laughs) And he would have to make up a whole nother storyline. So you never, you never really knew what was going to happen. And so you had to, you had to adapt to that. And so as an actor, you had to leave yourself open. Yeah. For change. Yeah. Right. You, you couldn't be so committed that that you paint yourself in a corner. Um, this was no different experience, um, you know. Uh, and I think John and Glenn, uh, the creators of the show, are, and just extraordinary writers. I mean, they, they wrote uh, one of their screenplays was Bad Santa. It was one of my favorite films yeah. of all time. And, and they're great filmmakers as well. They directed Crazy Stupid Love, which is, uh, you know, if I'm ever in a bad mood and I can throw that movie on, I'll be fine. They, I think they enjoyed kind of not letting me completely know. Yeah, uh, where it was going. Well, that also brings up makes sense because there's a lightness to the show. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say it's not a comedy or anything like that. But it has moments. There, there were moments. It's the funniest I, I've ever been. Yeah, I was. I was going <laughs> to ask you about that. I mean, it is. It, there's a lightness to the show that there, there wasn't in 24. There's a lightness to oh my the God, character. Jack, you know? Jack Bauer smiled once in eight seasons, <laughs> and that's when he killed Nina Myers. I mean, that's so wrong. Um, no, and and and. And it's really interesting because, I mean, I mean, I'll be brutally frank. No one's been knocking down my door trying to get me to do a comedy, right? right. Um, so I was really thrilled and kind of nervous about the opportunity. And I had the great pleasure of working with Maida Golding, who I think has such beautiful comedic timing. Yeah. Um, that she kind of ha- held my hand through it. Uh, it's just me. It's high process, fight or flight, which it's usually fight, especially when I'm scared. And I'm scared man who were those people and what have you gotten me into i don't have time for this blindfold or trunk what i don't want you seeing where i'm going blindfold or trunk you i find it interesting that you say no one's ever been banging down your door to do a comedy because i was going to ask you about that it feels like there has um the characters you play whether it be in this show or in in designated survivor or in 24 are always up against something Mm -hmm. they're all is that something that's attracted to you like i've never seen you play like a fun tim allen sitcom dad no um (laughs) i do like characters that are kind of facing insurmountable odds uh there's something really interesting about playing someone who can't win uh and i think on some level i think we all feel like that as human beings right That, that just there's no winning right we're just kind of getting through life um you you feel like you like playing characters who are facing sort of insurmountable odds they can't end up winning there's always something up against them because that's sort of the not not to get too real here but that's sort of the condition of life there is no winning there is no it's just you know and i mean (laughs) then you learn everything and then you die yeah right it's 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 so i i I, I didn't mean to make this kind of so, so depressing, but... but Come on, it's the there CBC, is, buddy. That's what else are you going to do? There is something kind of very identifiable to those characters, and, and they still do what is needed, right? Uh, I, I, 
had huge respect for the character of Jack Bauer because even in those insurmountable odds, yeah. even knowing that he was going to have to make decisions that were not decisions that someone would have to make, that you're going to sacrifice these five people to justify saving these five people, you know, uh, he still, as a character, he still did what he felt he had to do to do the, the best thing out of that situation. And I think there's something very human and identifiable with that kind of a character. Um, this character, uh, John Weir, has a much greater sense of humor. I think he's more complex yeah. uh, as a person and and I think probably enjoys life a lot more than maybe Jack Bauer. And so, uh, but he's still prepared uh, to take on the unwinnable task of something uh, because there is a moral center to him as well. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. You're listening to Tom's conversation with the actor Kiefer Sutherland. He has a new show out called Rabbit Hole, where he's playing a corporate espionage expert hacking into people's data and manipulating markets. You're going to want to hold on to your proverbial hats or literal hats uh, for what Kiefer told Tom about his own relationship to technology and how he gets his scripts. You raise an interesting point that in this sort of time of disinformation, of people, you know, reading news that is catering only to them. I'm actually talking to Bill Nye, like the science guy. Mm-hmm. Later today, we're going to talk a little bit about how uh, climate change science is presented and, and what we could maybe do better that way. But you said it's that's been interesting to you. Has has working on the show made you change your relationship with your phone, with your with your news habits? Well, it's, it's funny because I don't have a relationship with my phone. You're not uh, one of those phone people. No, and I don't have a computer, and I don't have email. You're you're kidding me. I still write my letters with a pen. Um, so why? I just I just do. It's it's I'm I'm probably the last person that still gets a screenplay on paper. Um, it's just the way that I've always worked. Uh, and and the truth is uh, I write my notes on a script, and, and I write them the way I do, and I don't have a tablet, and every time I've ever tried to get a tablet and get it to work, it doesn't. Um, and so I've just, uh, I, I'm not a proud Luddite. It's, it's not a, a thing. It's just I have a job that, that just has not required me uh, to do that. Now, having said that, uh, I have said to a friend or two, in the last 10 years, hey, you want to go grab some dinner? And they're like, oh, no, I've got like 100 emails I've got to answer and stuff like that. And that's when I go, oh, I'm pretty happy I don't have email. I was going to say, it seems like a much happier life to not have those kind of things, you know? I seem to be happier than my other friends who have computers and, and are, are slaves to their email accounts, yeah. Keith, you understand that this is interesting to me, that I've never met, I don't know if I've met anybody mm-hmm. who's, who doesn't have email or phones. Or, I don't. I've got a phone. I mean, and... and, and you can make phone calls on and, it. And, yes, and I, and I use it as that. Uh, I, remember some, I remember someone was like trying to take a picture and they were like, God, this camera won't work. And I was like, yeah, because it's a phone. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, I use it as a phone. Um, you know. Uh, it, it must have been an incredible learning curve then coming into this show, like l- learning about the various types of technology. Oh, I and- can fake it all. Oh, I, mean, I know, I know, you, you know. know. Jack, must, ba- Jack must- Bauer was at the, at, the, at the height, you know, when we were doing 24, every possible gadget, that was available. And yeah. even before they were available, Jack Bauer was using. Um, and you were going home and using a loom when you weren't? 
<laughs> yes. yes, I was making. Then I went home and made my blanket. <laughs> you, were, you were going home and churning butter when That's you were very funny. <laughs> um, no, but I mean, I I do remember directors coming up to me and go, "No one types that fast. Slow it down." Because I was like. Because I didn't know what I was doing. I was just banging away on the key. No, um, what I meant was that when you when you are immersed in this era of, of this this world of technological like disinformation and distrust, mm-hmm. it must only further reinforce your decision, even if it wasn't a decision, to sort of opt out of the whole thing. Well, I just there's a great story, you know, uh, Richard Nixon uh, and his wife were watching the news. And Walter Cronkite did a commentary piece where he said the Vietnam War was unwinnable. And she stood up and said, it's over. And he said, why? And she said, Walter Cronkite said, it's over. The Vietnam War is now over. We were getting our news and our information from one person, and, and it was fact-based. And whether we liked it or didn't like it, depending on the story, we accepted it. Yeah. And I think society functioned well as, as a result of that. Uh, I think now when, you know, and I certainly have my news stations that I like because they're going to kind of pivot to the angle that, that yeah. I want to hear. But I will, every once in a while, I'll turn on Fox News because I need to see what they're saying and how they're positioning it. And I, and I shouldn't have to. Right, and and I shouldn't have to whether it's left or right. Uh, the news should be the news, and facts should be that. And we sh- we as a society need to understand that and the truth. And just like science, and just like math, two plus two is four. Yeah. Uh, we should not have a philosophical debate on why it's not five. Yeah. It's just not. And uh, and and I I watch my children, I watch my grandchildren, and I watch them struggling with this. Uh, in a way that I certainly didn't have to struggle when I was growing up because I knew what was what. I knew when it was daytime. I knew when it was nighttime. Uh, I knew my times tables, and they were what they were. Um, and so, yeah, I, I feel the angst and frustration of, of my younger family members uh, in trying to kind of just have certain things be settled yeah. So, so the show is interesting to me from that point of view. Yeah. Um, as someone who just wants to hear the truth, I don't need to be at the forefront of technology. I just need to be someone who wants to, you know, see the truth for what it is. And and it was very interesting to do a show which challenges that. I am kind of jealous of you. Cheers. Good. To be honest, I'm kind of je- I'm kind of sitting here going, maybe I can do that. Maybe I can just put the phone away. And- well, I'll tell you something. You know, it's kind of nice to go by stationary. Yeah. And get a nice pen set and and do that kind of stuff, right? And and you feel like I'll wear a suit to go to that shop, and I'll feel kind of sophisticated. I love that. Yeah. I'm going to think about it. I think we got a couple more minutes. Let me just. I, I wanted to ask you a, a question before we go, and I wanted to talk a little bit about. Last time you were here, we talked a little bit about your grandfather mm-hmm. and, and about your, your about your dad. And I, I had this realization, I'm happy you brought up your kids and your grandkids, because I had this realization that you've sort of spent a lot of your career talking about legacy as landing on you, mm-hmm. like the legacy of having your father and the legacy of having your grandfather, mm-hmm. uh, Donald Sutherland and, and Tommy Douglas, I should mention, uh, and your mother, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and these things sort of weighing on you as your own time up. But now that you're... Um, 
I think about your daughter now, you know, who mm-hmm. I would know from Veep, who, mm-hmm. you know, and who has her own sort of incredible career and your own kids and grandkids. It's a big question. But learning what you did about like the, the honors and stresses of a legacy, mm-hmm. do you talk to them at all about that? It's so funny. Um, no. About like what they, what, what they like, take in? No, what they... it's, it's a great question. And the, and the answer is no, and no one ever talked to me about it either. Right. Um, like of all the times that I spent with my father and my mom, we never talked about work. And I've done a film with my dad and I've done a play with my mom and we still didn't talk about work, right? And, and I think the only hint my dad ever gave me it was, don't let them catch you lying. And of course, I didn't know what that meant at 15. Uh, but what it did mean is, is if you're doing a scene and it says, and the character starts to cry and is overcome with grief. If you don't feel that, don't do it. Figure out another way to play it. And of course, I didn't learn that until I didn't feel it one day and I faked it. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's awful. Yeah. Um, so it was a really valuable lesson. But it was kind of thrown at me in kind of such an offhanded way, right? It, there was never any real discussion about not even why do you like doing this? Not, none of it, right? Um, and, and only since you've asked the question that I realize I've, I've never really had that conversation with my, my daughter either. Um, just kind of, I know why I love doing it, mm. and I've just accepted that they have a reason as well. But you've never done the, like, she needs to go to the doctor and she lives in the States, so she has to figure out, like, her insurance. You've never gone to her and been like, hey, you know your grandfather got rid of that in Canada? Oh, I've, I've done that. Yeah. yeah we've, had, we've certainly had that discussion. Okay. And, uh, you know, and, and his accomplishments are kind of more tangible. Right. right? Uh, so, and I think unanimously uh, throughout our family agreed to be just simply more important <laughs> you know, than, anything that we're, than anything that we're doing. It's, it um, is kind of hard to celebrate anything when your grandfather created socialized medicine. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and when he, you know, and all of his, all of his stuff, I mean, when, when he went against the, the War Measures Act that was invoked in 1973 because he was standing up for individuals who were being picked up in Vancouver. Yeah. You know, the FLQ was a crisis that was happening in Quebec, but they used the War Measures Act to just pick up individuals in Vancouver that they wanted to arrest, right? And, and he was standing up and defending. I mean, the courage of that man was just extraordinary. And so, yes, everything does pale a little compared to that. But you bring up a really important thing, which is kind of the communication between parent and child. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish this interview and I'm going to go call my daughter and re-examine some things. Um, is really, really important. And, and a lot of the things that we might think are just so simplistic, they need to be said. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's the thing I just learned here. Well, I would tell you to write her an email, but maybe you should just get a get a I'll send her a card. Yeah, send her a card, <laughs> something like that. We're we're out of time, but I love no, talking to you all. Absolute pleasure, brother. Thanks so much. Thanks Cheers. for coming in. Send a carrier pigeon. Do that too. Kiefer Sutherland is starring in the new TV series Rabbit Hole. You can watch it on Paramount Plus, and that was his conversation with Tom Power. safe to say that when Sherry Boyle took a class called World of Porcelain with a bunch of classmates who were hobbyists, kind of elderly, maybe more traditional, 
she stood out. The class was a game changer for Sherry, who went on to make provocative and engaging sculpture and ceramic art. Coming up, she'll tell you about her solo exhibit that might challenge you, but is designed so everyone can get something out of it. I'm Talia Schlanger, in for Tom Power, and Q is back in a bit. I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. I am just drawn towards the uncomfortable, towards the position less taken, mostly because I'm, I think, just voraciously curious, and I know that I'm going to learn more. I just know that I'm going to learn more. If I'm standing on the outside, then on the inside. That is Sherry Boyle. She's been making groundbreaking art for a few solid decades now, drawing, painting, live performance, sculpture. And Sherry's work tends to pull you into the uncomfortable and invite you to be part of the experience. I'm Talia Schlanger. You are listening to Q. Sherry Boyle's latest solo exhibit is called Outside the Palace of Me. There are ceramics and paintings. There are also two-way mirrors, a life-sized automated human figure, and a playlist that you can control. And sure, it engages your senses, but it also jolts you into a bit of a reckoning. At this exhibit, you start thinking about your identity and your place in society. You can see Sherry's exhibit, Outside the Palace of Me, at the Vancouver Art Gallery from now until June 4th. Tom Power spoke to Sherry back when her show came through Toronto last year, and they started things off by talking about where her own journey began. You grew up in Scarborough, Ontario? Yeah, I did, in West Hill area of Scarborough, which is around Morningside and Lawrence and not so far from the Bluffs. And what was, what was life like when you were a kid? Well, uh, our family home, which we just let go, we had for 60 years. It was a tiny little kind of um, miniature bungalow that my dad, when he came from Saskatchewan and was driving cab in the late 50s, bought um, for my mom. They got married really young and started having kids around 18. So that house is where I grew up and as did all my five siblings. Um, and there was a big backyard and there was a lot of outdoor, you know, leave in the morning and see at 7 p.m. kind of activity. When there was when there was big backyard and there was glass and screen repair activity going on, were you off in the corner somewhere drawing? Yeah, I really was. I was eight years younger than the rest of my siblings. Oh, so me I was too. One of those, me too. I know. Really? You did you have that? Oh, well, I yes. was nine years younger and 11 wow. years younger. Okay, yeah. Well, my oldest brother's 15 years older. So there was a real gap. I was not intended, but um, they seemed to be okay with the fact that I showed up. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and I kind of came in a really, I was a very strange kid. I kind of stood out in the family. I didn't have similar interests. And uh, I was also, when you have that big of a gap, as you'll know, there's a sense that you're almost an only child because you're this little tiny kid and none of your older siblings want to play with you. They're much beyond that. And 
parents are exhausted, depending on how many of you there are, and they're working full time, both my parents were. So there was a lot of uh, alone time. And I also didn't, there was, I come from a very um, aggressively sports fixated family and very, uh, I have to just say straight up patriarchal, really interested in kind of competition and um, a bit violent, you know, <laughs> a bit strong and really like kind of this strange uh, connection to physical prowess. And all of that was so opposite to the way I was as a quite a sensitive kid and with a massive imagination. So the way I countered that alienation really was retreating into my mind and um, discovering that I could create a world of my own through images. Were you, were you supported? Were there people who looked at the images and said, I think you might have something here? I think at school first, my mom was always really crafty. And so she recognized that we did a lot of stuff together. But I mean, really, when your parents are working so hard, they don't have a ton of time to invest in that kind of thing. So I mostly was on my own. But, um, you know, school teachers recognized it. I started to you know, as a very young kid, like win little awards or be kind of steered towards um, making things. And I kind of actually see a real fork in my path around 13. There's a lot of bullying going on at school. I was, uh, you know, kind of in trouble. And I heard from a guidance counselor that there was this art high school called Wexford, and it was on the very west end of Scarborough, about an hour away from me by bus. And I just, in grade eight, kind of jumped on the bus by myself and went to <laughs> like, check this Did you place, tell, did you tell somebody out. you were going? Did you, did you, no, my no? parents would have freaked. They, I mean, they, it was, it was a strange time. Scarborough, the place, you know, the area of Scarborough I grew up in was tough. And there was actually, Paul Bernardo was actively, you know, predating yeah. that region at the exact moment that I was you know, walking home from long bus stops, as were all the other kids in my neighborhood. So it was it was um, something that happened because I felt incredibly compelled that I knew I had to find a place for myself. And in Wexford, which I immediately, as soon as I saw it and saw the programs there, I knew I had to be there. I ha even though I was scared to leave everything I knew and be totally alone, I it was the best move that I ever made. It, it did it, hey? Like it, it did what mm. you hoped it would do? It saved me. It saved me and it saved so many other Scarborough weirdo kids that didn't have a place that didn't seem to fit in. And at that time, too, Scarborough is so, has bloomed. It's so beautiful now. There's so many arts uh, and creative kind of cultural hubs going on with all sorts of people making things happen right there and then. And the University of Toronto has got its campus out. And there's, I mean, it's a really rich place with so many stories and so many people telling them. But at the time, I'd say, you know, in the 70s and the early 80s when I was growing up, um, it was much more kind of unsupported without any structural networks to kind of bring in people that weren't, weren't fitting in. When did you find out about, I know I sound like such a square right now, but when did you find out about punk and what did it mean to you? Well, music in general was something that as soon as I got to Wexford in grade nine, I immediately gravitated towards a crew of kids that were deep in the kind of punk and hardcore scene in Toronto, and as well as all sorts of other kids that were experimenting with different music forms and different kind of uh, alternative like video, film, theater. Um, and the music was so important to me because I had some of it at home from my older siblings, but no nothing, you know, as 
um, anti-authoritative. <laughs> that was, you know, that was something when you're dealing with really strong, um, overbearing kind of authority at home, you're looking maybe for something to kind of justify and validate your sense that you are being oppressed. <laughs> and so when you're given music that gives you a kind of sense of permission to rail against that, especially as a young person, your mind is so kind of unformed and you're just operating on these really strong kind of intuitions. It, I, it was a way, it was an outlet for me to really safely kind of express my anger and my kind of physical need to lash out because it was a community of people that were taking care of each other, alternately to what people often assume yeah. that there's a violence in this scene. The ethos was always, if someone falls, you grab them and pick them up, right? And so there was a sense of like, we're getting stuff out, but we're also looking out for each other. And that meant so much. It was a home away from home. But yeah, I look back on it and go, it gave me so much. And then it had so much um, to kind of teach me. You become really well known for your porcelain figures. And for people who aren't as familiar with your work, they might be thinking of the Hallmark store porcelain figures that you can buy next to the thing. But, you know, and I guess they are sort of like that, only very, very different. And we'll talk about that in a second. But what got you into porcelain? Well, yeah, that, I mean, in a way, it was inspired by those kind of mass-produced uh, fig- figurines. Maybe not the cherubs as much as, like, the Royal Dalton-style yeah, okay. figurines that you would see, <laughs> okay. you know, in, in someone's kind of china cabinet it, that would seem like some type of, like, colonial high culture, but really were tchotchkes, basically, essentially. Um, I was interested in the figurative nature of them and the potential for them telling stories. I've, I came out of drawing and painting, two-dimensional, making kind of worlds of images on you know, either canvas or paper. And seeing this stuff in three-dimension, but with the intricacy and detail of a drawing like I would make was really materially interesting to me. And that if I make a three-dimensional form, that can really come alive. And so I really stumbled upon porcelain in 2002 when I was traveling on the West Coast, as I have done a ton of traveling in my life and lived all over the place. And I happened to meet up with an artist out there who saw some of my drawings and was like, you know, you'd be really interested in this basement ceramic hobby class called the world of porcelain that this woman Vivian Housel does she's in her 80s and she lives out in the suburbs and this guy who had worked with ceramics this other artist had just kind of you know had made that off the connection off the top of his head I ended up going deep I I went to that class I took it for the weekend and I had a total introduction to slip cast porcelain what what was it what was everybody else making versus what you were making in the class they were all elderly hobbyists that were mostly retired uh like American white lady ladies or there was a Korean and a Japanese lady that had traveled because Vivian Housel had quite a record like a uh, what do you call it what am I blanking a reputation Yeah, reputation. And so they were making very, I mean, she was uh, really dictator, dictator, <laughs> dictatorial in her way, her tutorship of how to make a figurine. It was very specific. Everybody was like going down the list and making these exact replica. Like, this is how you paint the eye. This is how you paint the eyebrow. This is the way you're going to do the dress. This is where the hand goes. And I was just like, wow, look at all these molds over here that I could pour. Like, if I learn how to pour all these arms, why do I have to use two arms when I could use six arms? What what, what did the instructor make of this? They were, I mean, they were, the instructor 
was not into it. The other, <laughs> the other ladies in the class were kind of thrilled because they were like, what? I was not only 40 years younger, so I was like fresh blood. We well, you know when the one grandchild gets pulled to church and everybody turns around like vampires, like, come in. But it's a kind of like that. So they're really excited that this tradition was going to be passed on. But they were also gave me something like I remember the class would be dead silent in the workshop. And then I'd get up to go to the bathroom and I'd shut the door and I could hear them just start to like buzz. They were totally talking about me. And then as soon as I opened the door, it would get quiet again. Everything you're talking to me about, uh, up until this point, I'm, I'm seeing an outsider looking in. So when you get picked for the Venice Biennale, like th- that's a crowning achievement for a lot of artists. All of a sudden, are you not as much of an outsider anymore? Does that change the way you think about yourself as an artist? No, because I think that I was a very odd choice in the larger context. And I don't think it impacted the way that... That didn't change. It might have even deepened that sense because I went there and I stood out and I didn't kind of conform to the standards or the expectations that the Canadian, uh, you know, say, or even international art world would have been um, looking for. You know, I am really self-driven and my politics and my kind of themes are things that come from within and from other kind of alternative sources that aren't necessarily aligned with the contemporary dialogue. So I made a project that I feel had so many layers of depth and was so handmade and so made all the way through with all the people I worked with in this kind of holistic political manner. But it didn't, it wasn't like an insider project. It felt very outsider project. Mm. And my choices too, in terms of the musicians that I insisted that would come and play the Canadian party, say, or the people that I wanted to work with as fabricators were unconventional as well. Um, So in a way, you know, I think that, I I mean, it's strange because the narrative of the outsider or the uh, misunderstood artist is almost a cliche, right? But I see in myself, I think, in examining this stuff and reflecting on it for years that I am just drawn towards the uncomfortable, (laughs) towards the position less taken, mostly because I'm, I think, just voraciously curious and I know that I'm going to learn more. I just know that I'm going to learn more if I'm standing on the outside than on the inside. Let's let's talk about that in the context of, of your new exhibition. And Sherry, you'll have to forgive me here. It's exceedingly difficult to talk about such a visual media on the visual visual medium on the radio, but we'll do our best here. It is. There yeah, are sculptures, course. there's music, there are pieces that move. And I find it interesting that you set it up almost like a theater. There's a chorus, yeah. a front stage, a backstage. Mm-hmm. Like, how does that match how you want the audience to experience what you did here? It's uh, key. It's crucial. It's the whole context of the, you know, three-year project was to recontextualize a museum space uh, as a theater space. But very key is that you are coming in through the backstage door as a performer. You enter the dressing room first. You have an opportunity to look into and through a mirror. um, And then you move on to up the ramp onto the stage. If you've ever performed or been on stage, like many of us have, you know, that that moment where you go from your private inner self in the green room, Mm. you know, maybe you're making up, you're putting on your costume, you're getting prepared for that moment where you're going to kind of switch on to the public. And you're going from the darkened black 
back room, back hallway space into the lights of the proscenium arch and under there onto the stage and the footlights and the spotlight. That kind of transformation where you realize you are the performer, you are the person that is responsible and an agent of your own kind of experience in your life and how you're going to present that to the public. That's the key to the whole exhibition. Can you talk about White Elephant, one of the pieces in the exhibit? Yeah. Um, White Elephant, it's a nine foot tall seated figure and their clothes and skin and hair are all white. The body is super out of proportion. It's elongated and exaggerated and gigantic, but the posture that they're sitting in is kind of prim and forced casual, like a little bit like a Sears catalog. It's really uh, non-gendered and the hands and the head are made out of porcelain. The hair is all white and they're wearing a tailored wool sweater and a pleated dress pants. Um, But at random moments, this very still kind of stiff sculpture has a very fast 360 degree head spin. I've heard people tell me that that it's terrifying when this thing spins around at you. Yeah, yeah, I've I've been in the gallery without anybody realizing I was the artist on multiple occasions and heard people shriek just out of like complete, complete uh, you know, n- not expecting something to happen. It happens fast and it happens almost before you know it and it's over. And so there's a really uncanny fright. Um, I made this sculpture as a white artist to provoke conversations specifically with a white audience about white dominance and kind of question what exactly white culture even is. This giant figure represents whiteness in this, in a really non-conclusive way. I came up with the head spin as a really complicated gesture. It represents the violence and terror of white supremacy, as well as the confusion of not knowing how exactly to change the deep-seated systems of injustice that we all participate in. Um, it operates as a kind of a Trojan horse. When it goes into the gallery, it tours around Canada and each institution it enters, there's all sorts of conversation, not only with the audience, but the kind of interior behind the scenes gallery people from the curators to the programmers and educators all the way up through the board and the directors. You mentioned that you have to talk to a number of different people in order to make the art that you have to make, right? Mm. Sherry, I think you're the first artist I've ever heard admit that to me and the reason i say admit that to me is because i've always i've always had an idea like <laughs> like I've, I've often gone to exhibits and gone like well how did they know how to do that like mm. how do they know how to do wiring and how do they know how to do fabrication but it's i don't you don't hear many artists talk about the various skilled workers skilled tradespeople mm. mm-hmm. that go into making the art that you want to make what, what's going on so uh i guess coming from um labor family where I saw people work with their hands and also a family that didn't have money to hire out all the time. We did our, my father, you know, was a very handy person and we worked with all sorts of people that were also very handy and everybody did it themselves. You know, they figured out how to fix the stuff. You didn't just throw it out. So that whole mentality kind of infused me with a real respect for making and understanding these uh, all levels of skills and labor. And so that's a big part of me wanting to credit that. But I also feel like it's a political situation where so many skilled um, people that work in the arts that help contemporary artists create major projects are artists themselves. Or, uh, um, you know, if they don't identify personally as artists, they were trained in in the arts or they were, you know, they have all sorts of creative and interesting ideas that contribute to the project just through conversation and problem solving. So for me, um, 
uh, you know, look at a project like White Elephant, how would it be like holistically appropriate for me to make that project and claim it myself when there were at least five people that were involved in the conversations that helped me make each aspect of it that were key um, you know, collaborators and makers with all sorts of skills and ideas of themselves. So that I can't kind of claim any kind of political um, action without also acknowledging your colleagues. When, until I started hosting this show five or six years ago, and I would even say maybe until a year into it, I didn't feel incredibly comfortable going to a contemporary art space. I mm. can't quite tell you why. I don't think it was fear. I don't think it was intimidation. There were just maybe parts of me that maybe felt a bit shameful because I just thought, oh, I'm I'm probably not going to get it. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, this maybe this space kind of, you know, it's not really for me. You know, this mm-hmm. is not really for my crowd. And I'm thinking, I, I love that this exhibit we're talking about is going to travel around this country. And I hope it, it goes even further, you know, ar- around the country. Because I think I can hear people listening to our interview and hearing you talk and go, well, you know, geez, that sounds interesting. I'd like to see that. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. White Elf. I understand. Mm-hmm. I understand what that means. I'd like to see it. You know, I'd like to check mm-hmm. out that. And I can still see people like me and, and, and friends of mine getting to the door and going, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't mm-hmm. know. As this show travels outside of traditional contemporary art spaces in this country, what do you wish people knew about contemporary art? There, I mean... In its very best, art is an expression of what the values, the kind of imagination, the ideas, the kind of risk-taking, and the uh, proposition of what's possible in the world that we want to preserve and keep Um and also challenging things and difficult things. Often the very, uh, like the leading the political conversations, contemporary art is, is if you want to know what's really important politically across the world, you know, especially in the last few years, people are really taken to the galleries to see that. Um, in, on the other hand, there is an academic kind of stranglehold on contemporary arts, which can make things obscure. And there's also... Um, you know, unless you yourself are privy to that very specific kind of exclusive slice of education. So that's no, um, you know, surprise that many people feel like, well, this is a uh, kind of specialized field that I I could not possibly access. There's also a lot of speculative investment and money that is involved with the high contemporary arts, which is um, kind of, it's, intention is to obscure the meaning and the value of a piece (laughs) in order for people to be, um, you know, buying it at at great uh, amounts and putting it onto auction and making it ever more money on it. And that in itself is really a a sad and, and kind of undermining practice of what art could really mean for society. So it's a complex field and it asks you to um, open your um, kind of barriers and walls and it's a little risky you know and a lot of people go in and and they're not quite sure what they're looking at but uh, as for myself as an artist um i'm really interested in the challenge of having multiple layers to my work so that it can be read by almost anybody and giving people which is why i wanted people to come into the backstage as a performer and have their sovereign right to walk on that stage and interpret my art 
through their very unique and specific experience. Um, that I want to give the power back to people so that they can kind of gain a, a inspiration and kind of self-reflection that, you know, the best kind of art experiences can offer us. That's so beautiful. Sherry, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for, for helping me through that last question. And thanks for, I hope th- it helped. Th- thanks for telling <laughs> us your story. Thank you for asking. Sherry Boyle's solo exhibition, which sounds really cool, is called Outside the Palace of Me. You can see it now at the Vancouver Art Gallery. That was her conversation with Tom Power. And tomorrow on the show, Samantha B drops by Q to tell Tom Power about her early comedy days in Toronto, how she got her gig at The Daily Show, of course, full frontal, and why she keeps her ties to Canada so strong. I'm Talia Schlanger. See you next time. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.